Good morning to everybody. Uh, my name is CJ. I'm one of the pastors here, although I don't think we have any guests. I think everybody knows that. Um, it's really good to be with you this morning. Our vision as a church is that we would be a family of servant missionaries. Um, and it's kind of an intense statement uh, to speak about ourselves as family because all of us come in with different expectations or experiences of what that word means. We carry our own unique wounds from imperfect families. But the reason why we continue to use this language as a church is because of the amount of times in the New Testament that God is referred to as both Jesus's father and our heavenly father. So it's completely clear in the scriptures that when you and I decide to follow Jesus and become Christians, we join the household of faith. So then as believers, as a body, as a church, we are working out together day by day what it means that we are adopted members of God's family and how that should impact the way that we think and what we say and, and how we conduct ourselves in our relationship with God, in our relationship with each other, in our posture toward our neighbors. And so we're kind of asking ourselves constantly, like, what, what are the proper customs or etiquette, if you will, in this new household that I'm in? How do I see God as my father? How do I conduct myself as God's child? How do I hold reverence and awe for God in one hand, but also experience on the other hand, him as an intimate, accessible father? Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie, The Sound of Music, um, but I grew up with an older sister who watched it constantly, so I pretty much have the whole thing memorized. And in that uh, musical, in that story, Julie Andrews plays a character named Maria, who shows up as the new governess. Um, I'm getting hand claps from, that can't be uh, Anthony clapping, that has to be Allie. Um, she shows up as the new governess of the Von Trapp family and learns quickly that the kids have to behave much more like soldiers in their fa father's army than children. One of the most powerful moments in the film is when the father, Georg Von Trapp, once again engages his children as simply their dad and not their captain. They retain, the children retain their admiration and respect for him without having to live under the pressure of adherence to strict regimen as though they were his inferiors rather than beloved children. Now sometimes in certain settings, more proper etiquette is actually really appropriate. When I officiate a wedding or a funeral, I give very careful thought to how I speak and conduct myself. Another instance for me is I remember when I first uh, began serving the houseless community in Golden Gate Park, um, something I had never done in my life, and I would stand really close to my friend Claire, watching and listening to everything that she did so that I had a sense of how to best love my new friends. I'm in a new place with new customs and new, new behaviors are required of me, and so how do I conduct myself in this environment? Jesus' disciples wanted to understand from Jesus 
how they were to properly enter into God's presence and address him in prayer. How should they speak? What attitude should they embody? What is the proper etiquette that I have when I'm in prayer with God, my Father? So in today's text, Jesus shows us exactly how to engage God as our Father in prayer. And Jesus makes a radical departure from tradition and invites his disciples to pray to God as a loving father, a father who loves them more than they could possibly imagine. And Jesus wants to free us from any barrier that might keep us from talking with God by giving us a clear roadmap that leads us into his presence. Let me pray for us um, as we get ready to jump into Luke 11. Dearest Father God, we invite you to come this morning and speak to us. God, we thank you that we could gather as one family, that we um, are loved by you, that you delight to be in, in our presence with us. Lord, we just want to offer you glory and sincerest praise. We ask, Father, that your name would be great in our city in our state, in our nation, that many um, knees would bow and tongues confess that Jesus is Lord. God, we ask that more of your kingdom would come to earth. We confess that we have sinned, that we need your forgiveness, uh, that we, we have needs. We have need, need for you to provide for us. We need protection. We need, to be, uh, we need you to guide us. Um, God, would you um, just come and speak to us mightily from your word this morning? Be with us, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Um, so the disciples, like us, though they have been walking with Jesus for a number of years now, still have a tremendous amount to learn as they walk with Jesus on his journey final journey to Jerusalem where he'll ultimately go to be crucified. And there's a ton of stuff that Jesus is teaching his disciples in his last days. But one of the things that we're kind of seeing um, in this section is how Jesus is really disrupting some of the traditions and customs of the day. If you remember in Luke chapter 10, he teaches in the story of the Good Samaritan that love for our neighbor extends even to our enemies. That would have been totally new to his learners. And then after that, I taught a couple weeks ago in the story of Martha and Mary, where you have Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus instead of serving the meal, as was the custom. And so Jesus is kind of doing things here that would sort of um, shatter the categories of his listeners. And so the same thing is true this morning. Now, if you notice, uh, when we were looking at the scripture reading this morning, uh, it, the version in Luke's a little bit different than the traditional Lord's Prayer that we're used to. And that's because there's actually two slightly different versions of this prayer in the Gospels, one here in Luke and the other in Matthew. And they both actually have different contexts. So I actually want to look at Matthew's account really quickly. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. In this situation, Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. 
And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So Jesus is saying that when we pray, we shouldn't use it as a way to boast like the hypocrites do. The other way we shouldn't use prayer is like the pagans, which is as sort of thoughtless mantras. There's a show I really love right now um, on Netflix called Last Chance You, um, which is about junior college football programs. Great show, I'm getting thumbs up from Marley there. Um, one of the seasons is about a team from Mississippi. And if you watch that season, before and after every game, the team gathers around and they recite the Lord's Prayer. But when you hear them do it, it is much more like some sort of magic incantation that they're doing. So they're like coming together and then it's like, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be the name of I can't even come that, what we done? It's, it's totally insincere, okay? <laughs> and you get the sense of like, that is not what Jesus has in mind when he institutes the Lord's Prayer. Um, this is good for us to consider because we are a liturgical church, right? If, if we just spent the last... 20 minutes in our church reciting a lot. Um, and so we have to make sure that our liturgies never become mindless chants. Um, so for that reason, we're, we're gonna have a monthly confession. We're gonna say that confession. And at the end, we're gonna actually say, let's take a minute to actually reflect personally on what this means, okay? The goal of liturgy, the goal of, of praying prayers like the Lord's Prayer is true engagement with God from a sincere heart and a clear conscience. In verse nine of Matthew's account of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus say, says, pray then like this. Luke's version says, when you pray, say. So Jesus is allowing for this prayer to be used both as just a basic guideline as well as a particular structure. Okay, so we're free to use it either way. If there's more sincerity and engagement in reciting it word for word, then by all means recite it. If there's more sincerity in an engagement in making it our own, then make it our own. Okay, both practices are equally beneficial and I think some balance or combination of the two is really great. Now, Luke's context, where Matthew's is more about the heart posture of not being a hypocrite who boasts or a pagan who sort of recites it like a mantra, um, Luke's is a little bit different context. Let's pick it up in verse 1 of Luke 11. Here, here Luke tells us, Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now, it was customary for a rabbi to have particular prayers that they passed on to their disciples. Um, we don't have it, but we, we read right here that clearly John the Baptist had his own version of this, even though we don't have the actual prayer. Um, and so there's something good in this. Um, prayer is something we learn by practicing with others who know how to pray. That I think is partly why the petitions in the Lord's Prayer are all plural. It says, our Father, give us our daily bread. 
We are meant to pray in community with each other in order to learn how to pray, how to engage God. I personally uh, get to pray a lot with Dave and Georgia. Each time we gather for staff meeting, we spend time in prayer together. And I am so acquainted with their prayer habits that I could literally pray just as they do. Dave almost always opens his prayers with the words, dear father, right? Like if you you pray with Dave, like he's going to say, dear father. Georgia will regularly begin her prayer by praising God for who he is, acknowledging that he, that he resides over all of creation, that he's in control of all things. And so, man, my time in prayer with them has instructed me greatly. That is the learning posture the disciples have here. Okay, they're saying, Jesus, show us how to pray. I want to learn to pray like you do. And so in Luke's version, we have five petitions that we are going to walk through. I wish I had more time for each of them, but since there's so many, it's, well, I'm just gonna be like rapid fire. There's so, so much here. Um, but here are the five petitions. We see a petition for God's glory, a petition for God's rule, a petition for God's provision, a petition for God's forgiveness, and a petition for God's protection. Okay, let's jump in to verse two. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father. Now, we have to stop here because this would have completely blown the disciples' minds. Like for Jesus to say the first words out of your mouth in prayer, you are invited to call him Father, would have been completely foreign to them. Um, R.C. Sproul explains, explains this. He says, German theologian Joachim Jeremias, a New Testament scholar, did a study in which he searched through the Old Testament writings and existent rabbinic writings from ancient Jewish sources. He could not find a single example ever of a Jewish writer or author addressing God directly as Father in prayer until the 10th century AD. Okay, that's kind of wild. Like, when we think about the Old Testament, we look at the Old Testament, we see like God, God is not emphasized as a personal father to individuals. References to God as father are, if they are there, they are only in reference to the nation of Israel. He'll call the nation his son, like the nation is like a son to me, but never personally. And so no Jewish person would ever think of calling God Father in prayer. So Jesus is making a radical statement to his disciples. They had heard Jesus referring to God as Father plenty of times, right? When they're hearing Jesus pray, they're hearing him say, Father. In fact, every reference that Jesus makes to God, except for one in the, in the New Testament, he calls God Father. So what is completely shocking to the disciples is his invitation to them to refer to God as Father. He's saying, you, like me, can and should call God Father. Paul, who is a devoted Pharisee, would have grown up as a good Jewish boy, um, was himself shocked by this notion. 
and he teaches about it emphatically. It's part of his like big gospel in the book of Galatians of saying like, here's why this is so beautiful. He says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Okay. So one of the most tender marks of a Christian is their understanding that through Christ, they have a new father. This word, Abba, is the most intimate and childlike way in the Hebrew scriptures to speak of a father. The best translation we have in English is the word dada. Daddy, dada, papa. And as a dad, I could tell you, there is no greater sound in the world for me than to hear my kids say dada. I adore my children, Keen and August both, and both of them, the first words they ever spoke was the word dada. Keen, even though he's 11 years old, still crawls into my lap like Shaquille O'Neal and calls me dada, okay? And when he does, my heart bursts with joy even as I smell his sweaty 11-year-old body, okay? Like, it, there's so much joy as a father. So you and I and the disciples are being invited here to have our first words, our first words to God be the words dada, to cry out to a father who deeply loves us. It is eager to receive us, not as subordinates in his military, but as beloved children. Now, depending on your story, thinking of God as a father might sound amazing, or it might sound horrible, or some combination of the two, or some tension. There's a really great book that I love. It's actually out of print. I tried to buy it a couple months back. It's written by a guy named John Bishop. I highly recommend it. The book is called God Distorted. And it's all about how the struggle we have with our earthly fathers directly translates into the way that we experience God the Father. He lists several archetypes for dads. He talks about the passive father, the absent father, the demanding father, just to name a few, there's several others. But in that book, John Bishop says, the best case scenario is that we had a dad who was good, but still not God. He says, even then, even with having a good dad, the danger is still that our dad might not leave enough room in our lives for the awareness that that as kids, we need a much greater dad than he was. Okay, so if you are struggling this morning, as you, if you struggle to, to say those words, daddy, Abba, father, to God, and you reject God as a father because of the negative traits of your own dad, I just wanna implore you that you rob yourself of the redemption that God offers you in demonstrating himself as the most tender, engaged, protective, proud, present, committed father you will ever find. God is the, the one true father that you always needed that no earthly father could ever live up to. 
Even if you had an amazing dad, your dad's traits were only ever meant to point you toward an even greater father. Okay, so as, as Keen and August's dad, I'm having this conversation with them all the time. Like usually at bedtime, putting them to bed and I'm saying to them, does daddy love you so much? And August will say, yes, daddy loves you. Will daddy always love you no matter what? Yes. Does daddy protect you? Is daddy on your team? Does daddy believe in you? Is daddy proud of you? Yes, 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 yes. And then I'll always, the final question is always, who is the best daddy? Is there a daddy even greater than your dad? And they'll say, they know the answer. And you know, kids, my kids know that most of the answers to every question is Jesus or God. And it's like, God is the one, right? Um, and so then I'll just tell them, I'll say like, Yes, God is such a better dad than me. He is perfect. He's never in a bad mood. He's never frustrated when you interrupt him. He's never harsh with you. He has way more time than I do to spend with only you. In other words, everything I know my kids deeply long for from me are only ever perfectly found in God the Father. So dear friends, whether you had a horrible dad or a dad who was good but not God, Jesus is saying to you this morning, you should meet my dad. He wants to be your dad. He wants to adopt you into his family and call you beloved daughter, beloved son. It is to this kind of dad that we can then say, hallowed be your name. This word, hallowed, is the word hagiadzo, uh, which is the same word for holy. I'm not sure why the translation here is hallowed instead of holy, um, but it is. Uh, it just simply means holy. It means that God is set apart from any created thing on the earth. Now, we might think um, that this phrase is a statement that acknowledges the praiseworthiness of God's name. Um, that, that we are being invited to say, God, your name is deserving of praise. But actually, when we say, hallowed be your name, this is as much a petition as all the rest. We are being commanded by Jesus to say, God, please let your name be declared hallowed by all people everywhere. We're not just acknowledging the greatness of God's name. We're saying, Lord, would your name please be hallowed? Would your name be declared holy by everyone around us? So this first petition is a petition for God's glory, that his glory might spread. And then after this, the second petition is a petition for God's rule, saying, your kingdom come. Now, if you look at the Gospels, Jesus' message from day one of his earthly ministry was this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, it has everything to do with his kingdom. Now, the theme of, of kingdom, of God's kingdom, is woven throughout the entire story of the Bible. 
Remember that when God delivered Israel out of Egyptian slavery, his intention was to establish a theocracy where he would reign over the nation as their king. In that story, the people accepted the idea of a kingdom, of God's kingdom, but rejected God as their king. Remember, they wanted a human king like the other nations. Okay, God's like, I never wanted you to have a human king. I always wanted to be the king. And they're like, nope, we'd rather have a a human king. So he's like, okay, I'm going to grant you your request. But he warns them that an earthly king would actually take from them rather than give to and bless them. And as we follow the story through the Old Testament, what we see is like utter chaos ensued throughout the Jewish monarchy because of that choice. We are often exactly like Israel, who wanted the benefits of God's kingdom without his personal reign as king. I've shared this before, but Mark Sayers talks about this in his book, Disappearing Church. He reflects on a post-Christian culture who wants the kingdom without the king. And so we need to ask ourselves, do we want Christ's kingdom to come to earth? And do we want him to reign as king of that kingdom? The Bible says that that begins first in our own hearts, as we allow Christ to reign more and more supreme over every aspect of our life. And so when Jesus enters the scene, he comes in promising this new kingdom where he will sit on the throne of the new Israel, the true Israel, those who accept and follow him, like whether you bow to him or not. Hey, there's a new kingdom. I'm the king, whether you recognize me as such or not. R.C. Sproul reflects on this in his book about the Lord's Prayer. He says, when he came, Jesus inaugurated God's kingdom. He didn't consummate it, but he started it. And when he ascended into heaven, he went there for his coronation, for his investiture as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Jesus' kingship is not something that remains in the future. Christ is king right this minute. He is in the seat of the highest cosmic authority. Okay, so when we refer to Christ's kingdom, we will say that it is both already and not yet. So when we pray these words, when we join Jesus in praying these words, your kingdom come, we're acknowledging that it is here, but that it is not yet here in full. Now, I could preach a whole sermon on this. I clearly don't have time, obviously. Um, But there's a lot here in terms of um, what it means for Jesus' kingdom to come and, and, and when it comes and how it comes and what our role is in that process. But let me just say this about, about Christ's kingdom. There is, in Christ's kingdom, there is both perfect justice and perfect righteousness. And Jesus doesn't just intend for perfect righteousness and perfect justice to happen in some future eternal reality. We are to pray as believers that that would be more and more true 
here and now, that Christ's kingdom would break into the world more and more each day. This is part of why it's very hard for a Christian in our particular political climate where we have one party that might emphasize God's righteousness and de-emphasize his justice, and we have another party that may emphasize Christ's justice and diminish his righteousness, where we can feel homeless and say, neither of these realities um, are good enough to manifest the fullness of Christ's kingdom. And so as Christians, we live in that tension asking Jesus somehow I don't know how, would you use us as a church to usher in both of these realities that we would have the boldness and the conviction to hold them both together at the same time? I could go for longer, but I don't have time. There's a shift in the focus of our prayer here in this third petition from yours to ours. So we've been rightly praying so far um, with a focus on who God is and what belongs to his. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now we transition to um, thinking about ourselves and asking, petitioning God for needs that we have. And the first petition there is a petition for God's provision. Verse three, give us each day our daily bread. Now there are two simultaneous truths in this petition that I want to talk about. One is just a trust that God's going to provide for our needs and also a protection against greed and overconsumption. When Jesus utters these words, it would have reminded his disciples of a story their parents had told them over and over and over again as kids from the book of Exodus in chapter 16, when the nation of Israel is wandering around in the desert, awaiting their arrival in the promised land. Okay, the people despaired, fearing that they would starve to death. So God provided bread called manna that literally fell down from heaven. And in the story, God commanded the people to only take what they needed for each day. Now, many of them worshiped God for his provision and care, trusting in him that he would provide for them. But then there were others who did not listen to God's command. And then they stored up for themselves more than their fair share. And because of their sin, the story tells us that the manna that they put in their tents rotted and bred worms. When we think about idolatry in our culture, the, the thing that is driving so much of us, I would say that consumerism and greed is at the very top of the list of 21st century idolatry. Especially, we are especially vulnerable to this because of living in one of the wealthiest regions in the world. This last Wednesday, I was at my, um, my liturgy group doing O Antiphons, and I was confessing uh, to Renee and Mike and Emily who gathered with us um, how regularly I trade in God's wisdom for the worldly wisdom of consumerism. And I just like confessed, um, as much as I like rail, you guys have heard me rail over and over again in my sermons about consumerism, um, that we go after these earthly treasures, um, that are like manna stored in the tents of greedy Israelites, rotting, growing worms as we speak. 
Um, I am guilty of that, brothers and sisters. Like I am regularly compelled by consumerism and, and buy into that lie that those resources will bring me joy and lead me to flourishing. So this part of Jesus' prayer is meant to simultaneously rebuke us for our massive predisposition toward greedy consumption and indulgence, but also to assure us of God's daily provision. I read a story this week about children who, in Korea who had been orphaned after the Korean War. <clears throat> and though there was a national relief effort to feed the children and they were given three meals a day without fail, the children still had tremendous anxiety each night. Like they couldn't go to sleep because they were afraid there would not be enough food for them the next day. And so what they started doing was they started giving the kids a piece of bread to hold in their hand while they slept so that they could sleep with security knowing that they would have their need provided for each day. And I thought, what an amazing, beautiful illustration here of Jesus literally saying, I am the bread that you hold in your hands when you lay down at night to sleep. I am the one who provides for you. I thought of Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. It says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And so I want to invite all of us this morning to acknowledge and repent of wherever we have doubted that God would provide for us. Where have you struggled this week to doubt God that he would provide for you? And then also, would you confess the ways in which you have given your heart over to earthly treasures and securities this week, where you have worshiped consumption, where you have said, I want to put as much manna in my tent as I can so that I will be provided for and have what I need. It's so fitting, I think, then to enter into this next part of this prayer, the petition for forgiveness. Verse four, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. This petition um, reminds us to appreciate the gravity and the weight of our own sinfulness. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now this is a really unpopular idea in our culture. This idea of sin, that we have fall short of God's glory. Though ironically... I think some of the same people who would deny their own sin in our culture would have no problem identifying as victims of other people's sin, okay? There's a reason why we take time in every gathering to confess our sin to Jesus. We come every week to admit that as we stand before a holy God, we grossly fall short 
But more importantly, the big reason why we do it is to serve as a constant standing reminder of our forgiveness, that though we are sinners, we are forgiven by God. That is why we always follow confession so immediately with assurance of pardon. I don't know about you, but I grew up uh, in church with many opportunities to repent of my sin and far too few reminders of the assurance of Christ's forgiveness in my life. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater human experience than to recognize your sin and experience full unconditional forgiveness for it. I would argue that one of the most that forgiveness is one of the most critical components of any intimate relationship. My marriage to Renee is beautiful and intimate and and brings so much joy to me and one of the main reasons for that is the number of times that I have asked for and received her forgiveness and the amount of times she has asked for and received forgiveness from me. Jesus is saying here, when you pray, don't deprive yourself of forgiveness, of assurance. It is the gift of intimacy, of being reminded that you are fully seen, fully known, even in your most ugly and dark state, but also more loved than you can possibly imagine because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. The added statement, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, thankfully uh, does not mean that God's forgiveness of our sin is predicated on our forgiveness for others because we fail every day to live up to that standard of holiness. But our ability to forgive others does indicate whether we have a true understanding of grace. To the extent that I find it difficult to forgive others, that is an indication of how diminished my sense is of what God has done for me. When I struggle to forgive my brother or sister for their sin, I'm saying in essence that I think my sins were somehow easier to forgive or less offensive to God than the sins of others towards me. Okay, my inability to forgive others serves to show how I experience God's forgiveness of me. And so this morning, I would invite you to ask, are you avoiding repentance of sin and, and robbing yourself of God's grace, of his forgiveness? Are you failing to forgive someone who sinned against you? Or is there someone in your life that has fallen short of your expectation of them and you're struggling to give them grace? Maybe you need to be reminded of just how much God has bestowed his love and grace and forgiveness on you, that your sin is not somehow less of a big deal than the sins people have committed against you. The fifth and final petition in Luke's account is a petition for God's protection. It says, and lead us not into temptation. This is a reminder to appreciate um, how much sin is trying to crouch at our door and lead us astray. I'm reminded of 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful, 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Okay? We should not play around with temptation. We should avoid it at all costs. And we should petition God to help us in that effort. God, help me to avoid temptation. Lead me away from it. Now, this prayer does not suggest that when we are tempted, it's because God has caused temptation. James tells us in chapter 1 of his uh, epistle in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Okay, so we are to ask God to provide a way of escape from our temptation. I shared recently in one of my sermons of some temptation uh, for sin that are present in my life. And so this is a part of the Lord's Prayer that I take very seriously. I'm regularly asking God, will you show me pathways out of this temptation towards holiness? And I can tell you that God will listen to and offer his help for whatever temptation you are facing, if truly in your heart you desire to be free of it. He wants to lead us on pathways away from temptation toward his holiness. Okay, so as we look at these five petitions this morning, Jesus has literally given us a roadmap to enter into God's space and converse with him. And so will we walk the path he has laid out for us and experience the intimacy that God longs to have with us? Will we receive God as a father desiring that he would bring glory to his name, that he would rule and reign in our hearts, that he, would pro- that he alone would provide for every need that we have, that he would forgive us, that he would protect us? I think some of us would rather revere God as a captain, but not have him as a father. Others of us want God to be our buddy, but not our Lord. Jesus can save us from either of these temptations. Okay, we're reminded in this story that there is no our father without Jesus's my father's. It is Jesus's my father's that beget our our father's. And this is such grace to us. Jesus is the mediator who enables our relationship as children, even when we are failing to believe. In fact, Jesus left his father's house at great cost to himself to ensure our future presence in it. He gave us then even his spirit to groan prayers on our behalf, even when we can't pray or are unwilling to pray. I love um, this quote from Charles Spurgeon, a friend of mine, another pastor friend of mine posted it on Facebook this week. Um, He says, 
You stand before God as if you were Christ, because Christ stood before God as if he were you. And I love that picture. Let me pray for us as we close this morning. God, I'm so thankful for your word. Um, Ah, Lord, I pray, I pray that you would um, just teach and speak to our church. I, I could feel like there was so much today and I was going so fast. I wish I could have taken more time to just sit with um, each of these truths. And so I'm just asking Holy Spirit right now that you would just call to mind whatever part of this needs to be um, dealt with, with you and each person in our church family. Um, Lord, that you would be present and active and using your word to, to work in the lives of each person here. Um, God, I'm thankful that we can come before you and call you daddy, that you will sit and listen to us. God, I pray for healing and redemption in all of our stories around our father and those struggles and those wounds that we would more and more be able to receive you as father and understand how much you love us and delight in us. God, we give you praise and honor this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.